Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Ladies and gentlemen and non-binary peoples alike, you know what that music means. It's time for another amazing, fantabulous episode of Wired Up. This is Wired Up episode 80. 80 damn episodes of Wired Up. I cannot believe it. 80 Sundays. 80 hours, sort of, of content, even though it's not exactly 80. But anyways, welcome into the show here today. We've got a fun show planned for you today. I wanted to talk about the Houston Astros a little bit. They've always been fascinating to me, and I've been uh, reading this fantastic book that came out this month on the uh, Houston Astros cheating scandal. And so I wanted to talk about that, the Astros dynasty, and... uh, what is ultimately history will remember as a most peculiar time in baseball. So we'll get to that in a bit, but first I'd like to start off with the Eastern Conference Finals, a place where we had Bogdan Bogdanovich as the uh, third best player remaining in the series by the end of it, and that indeed includes Trey Young, who on his ankle tried to go in Game 6 for the Atlanta Hawks. He missed Game 5, which... We didn't, met, we didn't really talk about Game 5 because it wasn't all that interesting. But the Bucks end up winning Game 5 and winning Game 6 without Giannis Antetokounmpo, uh, even though according to, I forgot who the report was, I think Shams had reported that there was a scenario where Giannis would have been cleared to play Game 7 in a winner-go-home situation. Uh, but the Bucks never got to that point. But it does lead me to believe that Giannis is going to be okay for the playoffs. I'm sorry, for the NBA Finals. When that starts up, I'm guessing in like four days or something. I'm guessing they're going to take a little time off before the uh, NBA Finals, given that they wouldn't start it immediately, I would guess. I'm guessing it'll start probably on Wednesday. So Giannis is going to get like four days off, and uh, the Bucks will get healthy and... Then they'll go out to Phoenix and take on the Suns in the uh, NBA Finals. At least I think the first game is in Phoenix. I'm not 100% certain on that, but I can figure that out with one quick Google search while I fill time here. Um, Game one is in Phoenix on Tuesday. So Tuesday is when we kick off the NBA Finals. Um, So yeah. We'll get to that uh, in a little bit with the finals coverage, and obviously our buddy House of Phoenix Suns will have much to say on the NBA Finals, but also uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about Games 5 and 6 because, first of all, Brooke Lopez, 
They Brooke Lopez went like full Raheem Mostert in game five. He had like 34 points. He hit 60% of his shots. He hit three pointers. He hit drop shots in the paint. He caught lobs and dunked it with one hand. Like Brooke Lopez went like full hero ball uh, for a team that needed the offense badly in game five. They got 56 points between Bobby Portis and Brooke Lopez. Both of them had playoff career highs and all of it was very strange because the Bucks were able to keep running their offense with guys who are, you know, people who can give you 20 points with a high enough usage rate, but you know, you don't expect anything from Brooke Lopez and Bobby Portis or well, Bobby Portis has been nicknamed cranberry sauce, but I think he's kind of upgraded from that nickname playing for Giannis. Um, You don't expect anything from, uh, from Bobby Portis or biscuits and gravy, Connaughton, and Bryn Forbes. But when uh, when they switched up the lineup and Bobby Portis didn't even start, or I'm sorry, Bobby Portis started in game five and game six in replacing Giannis, and the high usage rate helped Bobby Portis for sure. It's the same reason why the New York Knicks chanted MVP for Bobby Portis in the Garden last season in, uh, I think it was December of 2019, where Bobby Portis gets a higher usage rate uh, he scores more points and the team is plays worse because anyone with a high usage rate will score a lot of points, but it doesn't necessarily correlate to victories because the team gets worse as one player who's not as skilled as a better player on another team, i.e. Uh, Gallinari or John Collins for the Atlanta Hawks. Or, you know, what they would hoped would be Kevin Herter. But I think Kevin Herter started with like nine consecutive missed shots in game six for the Hawks. When you have a higher usage rate for one player, team performance declines. It's why um, the Suns and Clippers series with Devin Booker as the best player on the Suns and Paul George as the best player on the Clippers felt like a five seed playing a seven seed. It was an interesting series. It was a fairly evenly matched series, but it felt like a five seed going up against the seven seed. And by game five between the Hawks and the Bucks, it threatened to have that same kind of vibe where, you know, everyone's struggling. It might be a close series, but we know at the same time that it's not like super entertaining basketball where Kevin Durant is doing something we've never seen before from an all-time great. Now, Brooke Lopez and Bobby Portis had excellent games that, you know, blew us away. But at the same time, it just it made my heart feel good to see that happen for Giannis to not get denied. Because we talked about after his injury in game four, like it was the cruelest fate for a superstar to get that close and have it be the last possible time before the Bucks were guaranteed to make it to the finals. And I think if Trey Young were healthy at the same time, I think we do have a different result in the series. Because um, obviously Trey Young played in Game Six, but they kept mentioning on the broadcast he he couldn't really push off off of that ankle or have confidence jumping on that ankle, and it affected two of Trey Young's biggest skills, which is the floater and being able to push off the ankle with the floater and the step back three pointer where Trey Young couldn't really land on that foot on the step back and his three-pointers kept up kept on coming up short just like what happened to James Harden when he tried playing on his injured hamstring 
was that all the three point jumpers ended up short and Trey young had four went four for 17 and his only baskets were inside the paint uh, pretty much from the same spot went zero for six from the three point line clearly not healthy, but ended up being uh, like James Harden in that one game five where Kevin Durant had 49 points and Brooklyn went up three, two on Milwaukee ended up being a detriment just by the unfortunate reality of not being able to play at full strength and push off of your ankle for floaters and step back three pointers. And I did sleep a little bit better at night, unfortunately, not because the Hawks lost and because, you know, all was right in the universe and warriors South, although they had an amazing season, it all felt like it was happening too fast. And I did sleep a little better knowing that, Giannis was going to get that trip to the finals and that all was going to be right in the universe. And Giannis was going to get to play for the championship that we kind of assumed he would be coordinated for. Uh, this was a red carpet coordination for Giannis. And now we're getting to that feeling a little bit more. We're getting to that Bucks and Suns NBA finals with, by the way, remember how we talked about at the beginning of the playoffs, that this was a generational shift in the NBA. In this NBA Finals, there is not a single player playing in the Finals who has won the NBA Finals. That would have been the case whether or not the Bucks or the Hawks advanced, but not a single player playing in the NBA Finals has ever won the NBA Finals. And the two best players, obviously Chris Paul and Devin Booker, you could argue who the best player on that team is, but... Specifically, Giannis Antetokounmpo and Devin Booker are both children of the youth movement in the NBA. Uh, Giannis Antetokounmpo is uh, 26 years old right now, and Devin Booker is 24. So this is the youth movement of the NBA taking shape right now. And so there's a coming of age that Giannis and Devin Booker are experiencing right now as their teams make finals runs. And to, to be fair, benefit from some massive injuries. But at the same time, it's cool to see this generational shift, even as their star players are older souls, shall we say. And Chris Middleton, I don't understand Chris Middleton at all. Like, I made this joke on uh, on Instagram after, well, I guess after the third quarter, where Chris Middleton had 23 points and had a 16-point run himself right out the gate. In the third quarter, it was an unbelievable dominating game six performance from Chris Middleton, Andrew Holiday. Both of them had 57 points, just shy of the 56 that are just sorry, just above the 56 that Brooke Lopez and Bobby Portis had in game five. But Chris Middleton had 30 points. 23 of them came in the third quarter. He had five points in the first half. And he had two points on free throws in the fourth quarter, but he had 23 points in the third. And it was the quarter that the Bucks blew the doors off of Atlanta because all of a sudden after shooting, I think it was five for 20 in the first half or five for 19 in the first half. They just started hitting every single shot. They had 44 points in the third quarter. It was the highest scoring quarter of the series. And it was just Chris Middleton magic. 
and Drew Holiday magic with scoop layups and you know Drew Holiday hitting three pointers at a and Drew Holiday's a fine three point shooter, but we don't come to expect ton of a ton of three pointers from Drew Holiday, but he hit a bunch of threes and Connaughton was hitting threes and PJ Tucker was hitting drop floaters and Brooke Lopez hit a three pointer in there. Like it was a maddening quarter, even though the Hawks scored 28 points, they found themselves down 19 at the end of the quarter. There was a short period of time where they cut a 19, a 20 point deficit to six, but then Milwaukee had their, this is it moment. And that this is it moment was P.J. Tucker, corner three, bottomed to make it a 10-point game with 1.30 to go. And we talked about this with um, Cam on the DSD podcast. It's I can't explain it other than the this-is-it moment, that moment where you know a team is going to the championship, where you know they've just won, and the Bucks had their this-is-it moment when you knew they put a dagger in the Atlanta Hawks with a three-pointer, with a with 90 seconds left to go and there was no way the Hawks were coming back. And that was their this is it moment right in front of our eyes and Chris Middleton although he wasn't a factor in the fourth quarter and was a factor in the reason the Hawks came back from 20 down to cut it to 6 ends up getting all of the praise because oh my lord not only did he have a 23-point quarter, but he hit a ton of contested shots. And the same thing happened in Game 2, where he hit more contested shots in that Game 2 where he carried the Bucks to a victory over Atlanta. He hit more contested shots in that game than anyone else did in the entire previous series in just the fourth quarter. Chris Middleton was absolutely bonkers in those games. And so for Chris Middleton to end up playing the way he did uh, and to get all of the praise for that one magical quarter was the help per se that Giannis was looking for. And the thing that helped me sleep a little bit better at night, courtesy of Chris Middleton, because this Bucks team deserves it. They've caught some great breaks. They deserve to make it to the NBA Finals. After all the heartache they've gone through over the last two years, a pandemic, uh, Kawhi Leonard stripping their soul from them in 2019, the, the Bucks deserve this one. And so, congratulations to the Milwaukee Bucks. You're going on a one-way ticket to the NBA Finals with a battle between the two best nicknames in sports. Fear the deer and rally the valley. And by the way, that deer district in Milwaukee was like 25,000 deep. I saw someone get like lifted up and take a shot like right on the camera when they when they panned the deer district. It it was like soccer. It was like those old soccer videos where like 40,000 people pack into a plaza and they're like shooting off flares and things like that. Like the deer district was awesome in Milwaukee. Um, I would say that that is a cool idea that uh, more teams should take advantage of as we move further and further out of a pandemic because the Raptors did it with Jurassic Park and the Bucks do it now with the Deer District. I think it's a cool idea um, for gathering people outside in the stadium. So Milwaukee, you've earned it. Fear the deer, baby. Fear the deer.
congratulations, Bucks and Bucks fans and Giannis and Middleton and Drew Holiday and PJ Tucker, who finally gets to go to an NBA Finals after 16 years and a trip to China and then second round pick coming back to America and grinding his way up with the Phoenix Suns and then becoming a star on the Rockets and for Brooke Lopez and Biscuits and Gravy and all the Milwaukee Bucks. Congratulations. You're going to the NBA Finals, and boy, did y'all deserve it. So for about a decade, the Houston Astros were pushing the limits of Major League Baseball's new window of Moneyball. Uh, both in the analytics movement of Moneyball, but also the movement of making baseball about a stat sheet and taking out the human element of baseball, even though there's no way to take a human element out of sports because a lot of what any business is is about relationships and managing people. And so the Houston Astros ended up being a fascinating experiment of moral flexibility and pushing baseball towards its um mckenzie firm uh you know consulting firm hedge fund peak and what that ended up leading to in houston was a number of scandals bad publicity and ultimately what would end up in twice really but what would ultimately end up in the largest cheating scandal of the last hundred years in professional baseball Uh, Bigger than steroids in terms of magnification of people really gravitating towards the issue. Um, Bigger than, you know, black, like biggest thing since the Black Sox scandal that threatened to really crush this, uh, I, I put in air quotes, integrity of the game or integrity of the result that fans seem to really care about and what created public pressure from Major League Baseball. And a lot of uh, this has been on my mind recently as I've been reading uh, the book by Andy Martino called Cheated, the inside story of the Astros scandal and a colorful history of sign stealing. One of the things Martino does great is besides having the juicy details of how the cheating scandal was executed, how often they executed the cheating scandal and what happened in those magical years of baseball from about 2014 to 2019, where every single postseason felt like it was dramatic. It was a legendary moment. Um, What ended up happening through all of that that got the Houston Astros to a place where it felt like it had to essentially be dismantled by selling their soul in the spirit of victory. Ultimately, the Houston Astros had to be dismantled after the 2019 season by Major League Baseball, basically by getting the college sports equivalent of the death penalty, which in college sports made it such that when programs had gotten so far out of control, they had to fire, or I'm sorry, they had to terminate the the program for one year, which would essentially set the program back 30 years per se. And so the Houston Astros still have a lot of success, but all the success of the Astros is holdovers from the previous regime and a retooling of the Astros that 
other teams cannot do because the Astros were working with a lot to begin with. And this is the same point about tanking, which is where we're going to start with the story here of the Houston Astros, because the Houston Astros got to the place they got to in part because they lost more games in a three-year stretch than any Major League Baseball team in history. From 2011 to 2013, the Houston Astros lost more games than any team in Major League Baseball. They had the number one pick three years in a row. Only one of them ended up actually playing for the Houston Astros. That would be Carlos Correa. But they had the number one pick in the draft three years in a row. They lost more games than anyone in MLB history uh, up until I think the Baltimore Orioles are rivaling that recently. But the thing about the Houston Astros that, you know, is important to remember when we talk about tanking and why like Baltimore and Pittsburgh and Detroit in baseball right now are saying, we're just going to bottom out and we're going to rebound the same way the Astros and the Cubs did. Well, one of the important things to remember with the Houston Astros was the fact that before Jeff Lunau, the now disgraced GM of the Houston Astros, ever got to Houston for his first day on the job in 2011, the Houston Astros inherited George Springer, Jose Altuve, and Dallas Keuchel. So they inherited a Cy Young Award-winning pitcher, They inherited an MVP of the league and they inherited who would end up becoming the leadoff hitter of that team for seven years. So the Houston Astros already had a building block of a foundation. Not that other franchises don't have building blocks already in place, but for the Tigers and the Orioles and Pittsburgh and teams that are actively tanking now to be really bad and try and return on investment. We talked about the Tigers last week with uh, with our buddy Blake on Friday, on Stripe Hype Friday, where the Tigers have been bad for five years now, like, like historically bad for five years, like 95 plus losses every single year. And yet they still feel years and years away because the Tigers haven't got any building blocks and they're waiting for guys to get to the major leagues like Casey Mize and Spencer Torkelson, but it doesn't do everything. And so the Astros, while they did do a lot of success in the analytics side of it, it's we'll talk about later on, they did inherit a lot of success and and pieces that would end up becoming instrumental in their championship teams. But they go through the first three years with a teardown that was extremely unpopular where they were worse than any franchise in baseball. They registered a 0.0 Nielsen rating on one of their games in Houston, where simply nobody was watching the Astros. They had a $26 million payroll, which took advantage of the fact that Major League Baseball has no salary floor. They have a a semi-salary cap, but they have no salary floor that teams have to spend this amount of money which during the process in the NBA compelled the Sixers to like give Gerard Bayless $27 million. There is no salary floor, and so they traded all their biggest players, and the Astros ended up bottoming out and turning it around by 2014, where they started to see improvements, 
which was a year where they drafted Brady Aiken, the pitcher from uh, California, San Diego. Shout out to San Diego, even though it was a rival school cathedral. Um, Brady Aiken was drafted with the number one pick in the draft. And his medicals revealed that he had what the Astros viewed as long-term arm issues. And the Houston Astros ended up giving him the lowest possible offer they could give to a number one pick, essentially, and still receive a compensatory pick if he did not sign with them. So the Astros basically said, after drafting him first overall, like weeks earlier, that they would give up the number one pick and his allocated slot money, and they would end up taking the compensatory pick and trying again next year. And that upset a lot of people, obviously, because it felt like they were bending the rules a bit too far, that they were going to the bare minimum they could offer and still get a compensatory pick, one that they knew Aiken would decline, and then end up getting his compensatory pick and trying again in a year. And what ended up happening to Brady Aiken confirmed the Astros' suspicions where in his first start of his first game with, uh, I believe it was, uh, it was a team in Florida who um, was like a post-draft team with guys who didn't go to college or who didn't commit to colleges but didn't commit to the MLB at like the IMG Academy. He ended up injuring his elbow and having Tommy John surgery like the Astros had feared. And so the Astros ended up being confirmed, right? But it was a lot of negative press. And the Astros were starting to bump people, uh, bump players the wrong way. They were bumping agents the wrong way. And they were beginning to bump other GMs the wrong way. And saying that they're a franchise that you don't want to be a part of. They're a franchise that treats players like numbers on a spreadsheet. That they really get the human aspect wrong. And this is an interesting part about Jeff Lunau, who is now the disgraced GM of the Houston Astros. One of his great flops in St. Louis, where he went before becoming the GM of the Astros, was a failure of communication of moderate and innovative ideas. Jeff Lunau was ahead of his time on a lot of this thing, on things like defensive shifts, um, meeting with coaches, uh, on arm angles of pitchers, and he brought in an artist who was drawing pitchers' arm motions and his idea of baseball pitching. And he misrepresented the openness of a lot of people to these changes. And once he had an organization where he could control all elements of the majors and minor leagues and connect them through the new technology that was evolving in the sport, like TrackMan data, StatCast, um, edgertronic cameras that allowed you to see a thousand frames per second from the outfield and analyze your at bats and or pitcher signs in real time. All of a sudden that combination of technology and moral flexibility and getting the human side wrong at times ended up being a perfect storm that ended up changing baseball but then going to the furthest extremes that ultimately made it such that baseball had to tear that team apart. And so there are three interesting players that they talk about in this story, or like people 
who they really dig into the backgrounds of them before getting into the de- the depths of the cheating scandal. There are three people who they really dig into their background. AJ Hinch, Alex Cora, and Carlos Beltran, who end up being the three people along with Lunau who take the biggest fall out of the cheating scandal. But ultimately for Beltron and Cora, they end up being the ones most responsible for the cheating scandal as compared to AJ Hinch, who AJ Hinch did not like the cheating scandal. He felt it or the cheating practice, but AJ Hinch didn't end up wanting to create conflict between a team that was rolling along the way they did. Ultimately, AJ Hinch ends up being the fall person because he's the leader. And ultimately I think that's a good thing that leaders, even if they're not participants take the fall, but AJ Hinch just didn't want to take things that far. And AJ Hinch didn't want to be the person who broke up the good morale of the Houston Astros. And so for AJ Hinch, it ends up being a a bitter pill to swallow. And they talked before about how AJ Hinch comes from, you know, a Stanford background and was best friends with Brody Van Wagenen and how he his major league career didn't pan out the way he wanted it to. And how AJ Hinch wants to end up being a GM and has to be convinced to be the manager of a Diamondbacks team that wasn't ready for what Hinch was bringing to the table. The idea of a shadow manager of general managers putting input on lineups. AJ Hinch was uh, uh, AJ Hinch and, and GM Josh Burns of the Diamondbacks where Hinch got his first coaching job at 35 in 2010. They were too far ahead of their time. Baseball wasn't ready for what they were bringing to the table. And the fact that Hinch had gotten the managerial job in a power struggle with former coach of the year, Bob Melvin, only hurt the situation because players felt a loyalty towards those coaches that had been fired. It was just ahead of their time and the Diamondbacks end up falling apart and Hinch spends years waiting to get back into coaching. And then the Astros job presents itself and he gets a deep roster that by 2015 makes one playoff appearance. They missed the playoffs in 2016 more by just a bad start to the season. But by 2017, everything starts humming for the Houston Astros. And that is when the good morale and the entrance of Alex Cora and Carlos Beltran end up creating the perfect combination for the sign-stealing scandal that really the Astros knew was morally flexible. But at the same time, they kind of just walked away from it after Cora left after 2017 to manage the Red Sox and Carlos Beltran retired because he couldn't really play anymore and was getting ready to years, uh, you know, two years later become the manager of the New York Mets for about two months before the science dealing scandal ended up costing him his job. And the Houston Astros end up humming along but also have a lot brewing under the surface. And the sign-stealing scandal starts up around May, the weekend of May 26th to 28th, 2000 and 20, or 2017, against the Baltimore Orioles, was when they realized that the best way to communicate signs was with 
the garbage can next to the monitor from the replay room that they had set up right below the tu- in the tunnel and the garbage can that was sitting next to that and a baseball bat. And it became the infamous banging on a trash can that we come to remember now as the story of those Houston Astros teams that comes to affiliate the Houston Astros from this point going forward. And the Astros end up winning a lot of games during the regular season with an amazing offense. Like it's their home road splits differ a little bit, but just an unbelievable offense between, you know, Marwin Gonzalez and the, the core four, uh, as they like to be called now. Um, and murderers mile pre Jordan Alvarez, of course, and Yuli Gurriel who ends up having his own scandal in the world series and all of that stuff for the Houston Astros makes it so that the Astros makes it so that the Houston Astros get to be a top of the line major league team, best team in baseball while also going through a cheating scandal that people suspect, but they can't quite put a finger on. And this guy, I think his name is Tony Adams. I believe was his name. This guy created a database of Houston Astros trash can bangs from available games after the fact. He spent 50 hours going through 61 regular season Astros games and counting the bangs on the TV broadcast. And the Houston Astros database, and by the way, so here's how the cheating scandal worked for those who have never known about this. So the cheating scandal worked in a way where bang meant off-speed pitch, And no bang meant fastball. And so in recorded bangs, it accounts for off-speed pitches that are coming to a pitcher. And of about 8,100 pitches that they had during this 60-game sample, about 1,400 of them recorded a bang on the trash can. The players that got the most bangs were Marwin Gonzalez, Carlos Correa, George Springer, Alex Bregman, Yuli Gurriel, and the players who ended up having the fewest strange anomalies on the bangs of players who did not want the help of the bang were Jose Altuve, Brian McCann, and Josh Reddick, who surprisingly recorded a few number of bangs from the science dealing scheme. And so the Houston Astros end up rolling along until August 31st, 2017, where Hurricane Harvey had just struck Houston and a massive confluence of events would all happen within 12 hours for the Houston Astros. The Astros had to play a home series in Tampa Bay because of the hurricane in Houston. So they would travel over to Tampa and the Houston Astros played a three game series in Tampa, obviously without the help of the sign stealing scheme because it was like a road game at home. And after the series concludes on a bus ride home to Houston, where they fly into Houston and there's just, a downpour of there's water in the streets. They can see the city is flooded. When they arrive in Houston, 
they have to bus back to the stadium and coordinate pickups. And on that bus ride back to the stadium, Alex Cora goes off on AJ Hinch and Jeff Blum, a former Astros player who is the lead play-by-play color analyst on the TV broadcast. Cora goes off on Hinch and Jeff Blum about a Latin player and coach divide. And according to the report says things such as next time there's a hurricane in Puerto Rico, I hope y'all give as much a shit about that. And also calls them some profane words. And ultimately it ends up being a contentious moment that Hinch would take control of. And uh, Craig Biggio would take control of because Craig Biggio happened to be on the trip with the, team and he got to ride the bus in Cora's seat which Cora did not take kindly to about him being slighted as a bench coach or him not having the input and all of that stuff Cora goes absolutely off on Hinch and Jeff Blum they return to a flooded stadium they exit and ultimately they had to play in Tampa and then they get back and on that exact same day where the city's been flooded and the team's arriving back home and they're going to meet with, you know, families in the community and displaced families at the convention center in Houston on that very day at 11:59 PM, the Houston Astros acquired Justin Verlander from the Detroit Tigers in a blockbuster trade that would ultimately be the trade that ended the August 31st trade deadline in baseball does not exist anymore. The August 31st trade deadline no longer is a thing. And it was a non-waiver deadline where after the regular trade deadline, if a player cleared waivers, they could be traded for like with no problems at all. It always used to be the joke that that's how Curtis Granderson would get traded every year. Cause Curtis Granderson always ended up on a contender, but that trade of Justin Verlander ended up being the final straw that ended the non-waiver trade deadline. It basically did not exist after that day or after that year. They got rid of it a year later. And it ends up being, you know, the Astros way of acquiring an ace whom with their technology and the track man and the, um, the Edgertronic camera, they end up immediately correcting Justin Verlander's fastball. They correct his slider when he dips down low after he throws the pitch and the slider gets left out or up. And that immediate correction turns around Justin Verlander's career. At 34 years old, Verlander went from apathy in Detroit and having a 3-8 ERA to becoming a Cy Young Award winner in 2019 at the age of 37. He ultimately tore his elbow last year that would that would pretty much end his career as he now gets to be 40 years old coming back from Tommy John surgery. But Justin Verlander went from a 34-year-old with it, it going through apathy in Detroit to now being a Cy Young winner and an ace for the 2017 Houston Astros. And so the Astros get to three weeks later, September 21st, when Danny Farquhar, pitcher for the Chicago White Sox, who if most people know baseball, they know Danny Farquhar as the player who had a brain hemorrhage in 
the dugout for the Chicago White Sox in 2019. But in 2017, he was a reliever for the Chicago White Sox who figured out the Astros' sign-stealing scheme. On September 21st, 2017, Farquhar and his catcher, I forgot the name of the catcher now, but I want to say it was Omar Navarez, but I'm not 100% sure. Farquhar ends up calling a changeup and hearing a bang. Then he calls a slider and hears a bang. And then he does a fastball, no bang. But then after two pitches and a fastball, he hears another bang. And the count gets to two and two. And after a foul ball by Evan Gaddis, he ends up meeting with the mound on the catcher and saying, they've got us. They've got something. Like they know the pitches. They know something. And so they called verbal cues on the pitches. They don't put down the fingers. And Gaddis strikes out on the next pitch. And so Farquhar ends up spooking the Houston Astros so much to the point that for the rest of the series, they take away the trash can. The Astros get so spooked that they stop using the track man, the camera in the outfield, they stop using the monitor in the dugout, and they stop using the trash can. They get so spooked by Danny Farquhar figuring out that something was up and not putting down the signals that they end up not using the trash can for the rest of the series. They got so spooked that they stopped using the trash can. And so multiple witnesses and participants came back in the postseason. And even though there's not, there's not great data to support the idea because um, our buddy who did signstealingscandal.com, our buddy who, who found the data, basically says also that ALCS and World Series data was impossible to collect because of combination of microphone placements were different on the national broadcasts, as well as just the ridiculous amounts of crowd noise at the Astros stadium during the 2017 postseason. At the same time, eyewitness accounts confirmed that the Houston Astros were indeed cheating during the World Series and CS, which makes sense given the crazy statistic that during that magical game five of the World Series, where the final score was like 13 to 12, and Clayton Kershaw got rocked for six runs in four and a third innings. In that magical game five, Clayton Kershaw threw 51 off speed pitches, 51 off speed pitches, and only one of them was swung on which is statistically a ridiculous anomaly. Statistically, by the history of baseball, that is a ridiculous anomaly. And so people come to confirm that, hey, the Astros had Kershaw's pitches, or they knew when the curveball was coming and they knew to lay off. And so the Houston Astros end up winning that game five magically in Houston, 13 to 12. And they go back to Los Angeles and without the help of the trash can, they end up winning the World Series in seven games against the Los Angeles Dodgers. But Cora would move on, Beltron would move on, and the sign-stealing trash can scheme would move on. Now, they had other ways 
of communicating signs that are more difficult to prove because there hasn't been players who are willing to put their name on it because another person who leaves after the 2017 season was a pitcher named Mike Fires. And people who know this story know Mike Fires as the whistleblower, the guy who, once he went to the Detroit Tigers in 2018 and then was traded from the Tigers to the Oakland Athletics where he would throw a no-hitter, Fires ended up spilling the beans on the trash can scheme. And it became an open secret throughout baseball that, hey, the Houston Astros are cheating. They used a trash can in the 2017 playoffs in the 2017 season and a camera in the outfield with the replace monitor, but they would just switch from the replay monitor to that other camera and just start stealing signs. And so they figured it out real quick that the Houston Astros were cheating that year. They were cheating in 2018 and they were cheating believed to be in 2019, although there's not concrete evidence that points towards the con- to the 2019 cheating scheme. Only voices, only, only whispers throughout baseball. There hasn't been enough information to pin down that the Houston Astros were cheating. There's not conclusive evidence that would be journalistically credible to pin down. And so they win the World Series in 2017, but the other part of it is in 2018, they lose in the CS League Championship Series to the Boston Red Sox. In 2019, with their murderer's mile, with the fourth greatest offense in the history of baseball, the core four still intact, Yuli Gurriel, Jordan Alvarez winning Rookie of the Year, Michael Brantley, uh, Josh Reddick. That team ended up being one of the best offenses in the history of baseball. And they end up losing the World Series to the Houston Ash or to the Washington Nationals. Strangely, they lost all four games at home in the series. They won three games in Washington and lost all four games at home. And the Washington Nationals had a code breaker. The Washington Nationals had a code breaker to counter the Astros code breaker by creating little like uh, NFL style play sheets that they would put on wristbands and in pockets for indicators that would change the signs between like six different versions of the signs that made it impossible for the Astros to break the code. But the only reason that Washington knew to do that in the 2019 World Series was because of the open secret in baseball that the Houston Astros were going well above and beyond all the other cheaters in baseball. And there may be 30 teams in baseball, but if your team is shit, there's no real incentive to put in the effort to steal signs. It's just unnecessary and uh, people will hate it more just because morale's already low. And so the Houston Astros end up losing that World Series and that playoffs and that World Series ends up being defined by a different scandal. One that would end up breaking up the Houston Astros front office well before when after the 20 during the 2018 season, the Houston Astros acquired Roberto Osuna from the Toronto Blue Jays. And Roberto Osuna had been suspended, was in the middle of a 75-game suspension for domestic violence in an incident where he beat up the wife of his child, who then fled to Mexico, and therefore 
did not press charges against or Ozuna ended up escaping charges because she did not want to return to Canada. And so Ozuna ends up on the Houston Astros acquired via a trade that would be a, a like for, for within the media, a confirmation that the Astros had no soul that the Astros were putting numbers on a spreadsheet, taking the human aspect out of it. When in reality, there was a lot of conflicting points on the morale of the Houston Astros and the front office was very conflicted, but it, according to the reports, it was Lou now who ended up being the person who was pushing hard for Ozuna, even though in the past they had cut a player in the minors after video surfaced of him beating up a, I want to say girlfriend. Um, and they had, they had taken moral stands on this in the past was basically the point. And this, for Lunau, because of Ozuna's impact, ended up being something that could matter that much more. And so one of the people who was opposed to that was a soon-to-be assistant GM named Brandon Talkman, or Tobman, sorry, Tobman. And Tobman ends up being someone who says, I do not support the idea of get bringing in Roberto Ozuna, and he gets, over, he gets overruled by Lunau. And then has to be the one who works with Osuna on TrackMan data and all of that. So he ends up being morally conflicted in order to do his job. And it's an emotional roller coaster within the organization over Osuna. So now flash forward to a year later, 2019. After the Astros win the ALCS against the Yankees and advance to the World Series, their little brothers, the Yankees, might I add, with a little smirk. Because 2015, 2017, and 2019, they eliminated the New York Yankees right in the middle of their championship window. But at the same time, the Houston Astros win the ALCS, and Tobman, while after drinking in the locker room, directed towards a group of female staffers, uh, says something to the extent of, we've bleeping told you about Ozuna. I love Osuna per se. It's like as if it was like a directed threat to to this group of female reporters, one of whom had a purple domestic violence bracelet on at the time and ends up reporting this and the Astros do the one thing you can do worse than actually than actually following up with that report, which is then the incident itself which is trying to destroy her credibility to destroy this reporter's career, this female reporter from sports illustrated's career. And the Houston Astros end up saying that this is all fabricated and it's, it's a, a, and it was also viewed by Lou now before, but it's a direct threat in an effort to ruin this reporter's career after she, after sports illustrated ended up posting a story about this and it became national headlines. And it ultimately means that Tobman is going to have to be fired over this crazy after the crazy national attention and that Jeff Lunau was going to be held responsible in the bad PR. And Lunau handled it very poorly, both in the statement and the press conference afterwards. Lunau ended up basically getting caught with his pants down and Jim Crane ended up taking a lot of the blame and him issuing a a redaction of the first story 
that none of it was true. And now the organization was caught lying multiple times. Either way you see it, they're caught lying. And the Houston Astros end up being tethered because now this goes beyond, you know, Brady Aiken and his injuries, or it goes beyond banging on trash cans because now you expose the underlying belly that the underbelly that baseball doesn't like talking about, which is the increasing homogenization of baseball and the fact that baseball is becoming an increasingly straight, white, cisgender male sport. And this is a problem that baseball has across its baseball has a problem across its landscape, which is a brain drain of the sport and a brain drain of people with different perspectives. And the Houston Astros were like a a hedge fund per se. The Houston Astros were ran with how can we be as loosely moral as possible to gain an advantage on the competition. And the Houston Astros were always trying to be on the forefront of innovation by making people seem that they were never safe in their jobs and make it such that the Houston Astros could pursue action against other teams and other players and other staff within front office with morality, not on their side, but with basically basically a get-out-of-jail-free card. And that ends up coming down on the Astros. They end up losing the World Series and everything falls apart. The sign-stealing scandal is revealed. Baseball investigates a GM, three managers, and a, and obviously a, a ton of draft picks end up being the loss. But ultimately, the Astros, as we knew it, were destroyed. Their GM, the head of the snake, gone. They just fired Tobman over the other scandal. Gone. Assistant GM. Uh, top GMs who had come over with Lunau had taken other jobs. And like with um, with the Milwaukee Brewers and Baltimore Orioles, were both former Astros protégés now. They didn't promote from within. They hired uh, James Crick from the Tampa Bay Rays. So they hired from outside the organization. They hired Dusty Baker from outside the organization. A year later, they would lose in Game 7 of the ALCS. And uh, George Springer would leave, part of the core four, with him, Altuve, Carlos Correa, and Alex Bregman. George Springer would leave. Uh, Justin Verlander would have Tommy John. Garrett Cole would be gone. And the team slowly, slowly picked apart. They're still a very competitive team. They're still a really competitive team. They're the best team in the American League right now. But it's a different version of the Houston Astros. The Astros of yesteryear do not exist in the way they once did. It's a different organization, a different regime, different players. And everything was forced to be broken up after the sign-stealing scandal. Baseball said, we cannot allow this to exist anymore within its sport. And Lunau is suing baseball. He'll agree to a settlement and never come back to the sport. A.J. Hinch ends up getting a job with the lowly Detroit Tigers. Cora gets his job back with the Red Sox, who are immediately good again. All of it is a very complex and complicated situation after the fact, especially for Mike Fires, who ends up being the whistleblower. But that ends up being the story of the Houston Astros dynasty. One of great innovation, one that was immensely successful and a new way to build a major league franchise and a major league baseball roster. 
but at the same time caught a lot of good breaks off the bat and the Houston Astros pushed the moral boundaries to a point where it became a stain on baseball, a stain on the organization, and a stain on just morals and ethics, unfortunately. But it's a fascinating run, and it was a fascinating nine years, and a decade of Houston Astros experimenting, pushing the limits of what was morally righteous or acceptable, ends up creating a fascinating thought experiment for Major League Baseball. So ladies and gentlemen and non-binary people alike, thank you for stopping in here to Wired Up. Enjoy your 4th of July. Enjoy watching the hot dog eating contest or whatever else you may do here on this magical holiday. Thank you, everybody. We'll talk to you again tomorrow. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.